and welcome to another edition of St. Paul's Letters to America. I am your host, Ray Gerard, is my name, uh, co-host. Uh, once again in studio with us today is uh, Deacon Bob Henicus, uh, who's also in seminary to become a Catholic priest. Um, and uh, this is St. Paul's Letters to America. This is the program that asks, as we look at the events and things happening around us in our world today, would St. Paul have anything to say about them? If he were alive and could write a letter to America, what would he say? Well, join us, won't you? Let's take a look. So um, today, Bob, we were just talking about this before we uh, before we started this uh, podcast. Um, there's a story that came out of uh, the United Kingdom. Bob, you you know this story, but you want to I, just... I've I've read a little bit, and the story is that a classroom um, of sort of, I think it was intermediate school students, eighth grade, um, were talking about who they were, their identity, how life went, and trying to— It was a class. It was was, a life education—it was called the official title, I guess, a life education class. Right. So they're— Catchy little title. Trying to understand who they are, I guess, and and what's what's possible. And in this class, one of the children, one of the students— made sure that everybody was aware that they were no longer a young lady. I think she started as a young lady. She was now developing and putting forth that she was a cat. And um, one of the students most adamantly disagreed and suggested that that was not something that was possible. She was a young lady, and she was still a young lady, and that being a cat was not okay. Well, the student that suggested the cat was not okay was severely reprimanded by the teacher, saying that that was not acceptable to tell them that, that these antiquated ideas that they had were were wrong, and there is more than two genders, and there are many different genders, and they should just understand this and really had no right to even have this conversation, that it was a given that this this occur, and it caused quite a quite a stir. Uh, it even caused more of a stir for someone like myself who read that this was actually a religious school, a uh, school from the Church of England that was posing this idea, and the teacher uh, demanding basically that you're not even allowed to disagree, that people have a right to be anything they want and can just declare their gender, their gender that two um, genders is obviously the wrong answer to them. And they were desirous of making sure everybody understood that and that other opinions were not allowed, um, which is flabbergasting for, for myself as a student of theology. One of the things we learn is that there are two genders. That was, <laughs> it's a, that's sort of a, a bedrock principle for us. That male and female. Male and created. female. <laughs> I think Christ said that, male and female. Created I, we, we, we created them and the Father created them. And sort of a bedrock piece of, um, of information and so very hard to imagine, one, that you disagree with that, but two, that you would say you're not even allowed to say that or have that opinion, that that is too antiquated and uh, quite daring, quite, uh, quite, yeah. quite a bit of a struggle. Yeah, I mean, just imagine, this is what's going on now in a classroom uh, here in our world today where some 13-year-old girl has the audacity, I mean, the unmitigated audacity to say there are boys and girls. Um, you know, I, as you look around that classroom, I imagine what you're going to be looking at are people that look like boys and girls. Yes. And so she came up with the outlandish, crazy idea that, yeah, there are boys and girls here and not cats. And was reprimanded, was scolded. The teacher even went so far as to say this girl was despicable. Mm. She made an intense moral judgment, trying to make this child feel small, trying to make, I don't know what she was trying to make this child feel. Um, you know, it's just, it's hard to imagine. I mean, the, you know, you have a 13-year-old standing up for reality, what you can see with your own two eyes. Now, the the teacher, like so many other people, take this position that, well, gender is not, there's a quote, gender is not linked to the parts that you were born with. Gender is how you identify. Um, and she said that this is what she said from the very beginning of the lesson. She's trying to teach this lesson, 
that gender is what you identify with. And this is, this is in a classroom setting. This has an air of authority all around it. Um, the kids are supposed to be instructed in this. The kids are supposed to take this and learn this. They're not supposed to question it. And if you do, like a 13-year-old girl, she had the courage as a mere 13-year-old to argue with an adult. I mean, that's a hard thing to do. And the adult then just chastises her, calls her despicable. The reason I think the, the teacher used that word was because she felt, well, now you're harming the, um, you know, the, the feelings of this one child who identifies as a cat. And so that's a terrible thing. You're making a you know, person feel bad. Of course, doing that, you know, criticizing that at the time when she's trying to make this 13-year-old feel terrible and hurt her feelings terribly by calling her despicable. It was the animosity, I think, that the teacher, uh, you know, expressed that I think caught the attention of a lot of news outlets. That's why, it, you know, it made, made the rounds. Um, but this is what's going on in these classrooms. It certainly not only shocked me, it troubled me. Because as a teacher for eight years, my life was to make the classroom a place where people could actually bring up their ideas, to talk about what it is that they may be confused about or don't understand. Because it is through conversation that people begin to understand, to learn, to, to, to talk about it and be able to express their ideas. And in fact, for a 13-year-old, one of the critical things is to let them talk and let them work through their own ideas and begin to process and put this and get in their own head and begin to truly understand what's true and what's not true. And you want them to talk. You want them to express. You want them to understand. You want them to, to explore and, and to learn. And so to shut the ideas down because it's not what is part of the curriculum and, and do that. I, you know, I, I was a math engineering science guy, so I could say two plus two is four. And they, somebody might say, no, Mr. Hennekes, two plus two is three. And I'd say, well, let me explain it to you. I wouldn't say, no, you're wrong. I'd say, let me help you and understand why I think Well, you wouldn't this say right. they're despicable. I certainly wouldn't say despicable. <laughs> but I said, I've got two fingers, right, up in my left hand, and I've got two in my right. Now count the number of fingers that I have. Well, you count to four, one, two, three, four. So therefore, two plus two is four. And you put forth that conversation and let them develop that and understand. But you don't scream at them and tell them they're despicable because they have a difference of an opinion of you, right? You can help them understand you think. So would you, if a, if a student, you know, questions you on something or express their own opinion in the class, would you say, quote, I'm not having that expressed in my lesson, unquote. I'm not going to allow that at all. You can't think for yourself. I'm not even going to allow that opinion in this classroom. I I think most of the time you would say yes now if they began to use vulgarity or curse the name of the Lord or something along those lines. I think I'd say, listen, we need to stop at this point. Right. Uh, that would be inappropriate. And if you can't keep from doing that, we'll need you to go down and see the dean and talk with them. But but telling someone, making a judgment like this teacher that someone is despicable, well, holy cow, that just blows my mind. I think if you're going to deny reality, if you're going to sit with a in a classroom with, with uh, you know, I don't know, 30, 20, 30 boys and girls and say you're not boys and girls and you're going to deny the reality that people can see with their own eyes, then I think you have to say this is what you will believe and no other opinions will be allowed because how else are you going to make that case? You, you can explain how 2 plus 2 equals 4. How do you explain that, you know, these kids' eyes are lying to them. You'd have to take this dictatorial kind of approach. You would have to, as this teacher did, say, hey, if you express this contrary opinion, I'm going to report you to the authorities. You're going to have to say, as this teacher did, look, you need to leave this school. Maybe, maybe you should just simply leave this school. We don't want you here. Get out. That's, these are things that this teacher did. Now, the the school then came out with a statement and said, you know, hey, we cherish, you know, a free and open discussion, et cetera, et cetera. And we're going to put it, we're going to, you know, have discussions with the relevant parties to make sure this doesn't happen again, et cetera, et cetera. Okay, fine. And I hoped, and I hope they, I hope they do that. Um, and I hope that, you know, kids can, you know, express their opinions. 
I would have my own skepticism about how good they're going to be in terms of living up to that public relations statement that they issued. But, you know, give them the better for the doubt. Maybe they will. Um, but anyways, another interesting thing is at one point during the discussion, the teacher wasn't, I guess I'm going to ad lib a little here or paraphrase, characterize, make a little bit of a judgment. Nah, I guess a, a judgment of my own. So I'll do this with tongue in cheek. But um, the teacher wasn't satisfied with, uh, you know, excoriating just the little girl. So the teacher said, where do you get these ideas that there's only two genders, only two biological sexes? The teacher denied there's only two biological sexes as well. But anyway, where do you get these ideas? Where does this come from? Well, my mom would agree, agree with me, the, the student then responded. And the teacher said, well, that's something to the effect of, well, that's where we get homophobia. So now she is ridiculing the child's mother as well. There's an awful lot of, well, I mean, it's just hostility, animosity. I don't know. Is that a healthy learning environment? So, I, um, and of course we could go down that road. But, you know, the, the, this caused me to ask a question. Where did these ideas come from that there's only two genders? Then I thought, well, where does this idea come from that there are not? And then I stumbled upon an individual by the name of Martine Rothblatt. If you haven't heard the name, then, you're good, then you'd be just like me up until the day before yesterday. Martine Rothblatt. She happens to have been on uh, the cover, the feature of a cover story in 2014 on New York Magazine as the most highest paid female CEO in America. Now, she was born Martin Rothblatt. But anyways, by 2014, she was the most highest paid female CEO in, the U in America. She happened to be the founder of Sirius Satellite Radio. I'm a subscriber myself. Um, big, you know, big business. Uh, the founder of, of that company and so a very successful person. Well, in 1994, she underwent sex reassignment surgery and changed from Martin to Martine. Okay. Um, what's so special besides her, you know, financial success? What's so special about Martine Rothblatt? Well, she wrote a book. She wrote a book. It's called From Transgender to Transhuman. From Transgender to Transhuman. Copyright 2011. Originally entitled The Apartheid of Sex. The apartheid of sex. Sex now, sex in terms of the two sexes. Gender. Well, yeah. or, sex or and gender. Uh, in right. today's world, sex and gender are two dramatically different terms. Bob, I mean, get, come on, get with it. But anyways, um, yeah, the apartheid of sex because sex, this idea, this so-called so-called cisgender. I don't know what that means, but anyway, cisgender idea of there being two sexes, two genders. S Cisgender, as I understand it, means that you believe yeah, yeah, that you're right. the sex that you were born and you're accepting of that. I don't know, but the cis, I don't know whether, whatever, I yeah. don't know how that comes about, whatever. Mm -hmm. um, that that is slavery. The idea that there's only two is akin to slavery and that we have to be freed from this. The background on Martine Rothblatt is that she grew up in a small suburb of San Diego and uh, she grew up uh, in, this, in this particular suburb, I guess it was heavily Christian. Every December, like every house would have Christmas lights, except hers. Um, she lived, well, her parents, she was raised Jewish. Well, anyways, um, she recalled, well, but anyways, it was, a, it was a highly, I guess, homogenous kind of little suburb. And uh, she remembers, I guess, the first or the only person of co color she ever saw when she was a young kid um, apparently uh, was taunted with the N-word. Um, so then she, they moved to Los Angeles, and it was like, you know, just a culture shock because she found out that everything was not so homogenous, that there were Asian people, that Jews, that there were a lot of different, a lot of Jews um, in the city. Uh, there were a lot of different religions. And so she then you know, learned that, or learned and, and, and began to really 
question this idea of, of, I guess, prejudice or this idea that we all should be, you know, one way and began to appreciate the diversity with all kinds of different people. Anyways, so that was, I guess, her early, you know, mental development. She began to appreciate differences and that people had the right to be different. I think that's kind of American, to tell you the truth, um, and also very Christian, to tell you the truth. Um, anyways, um, so uh, she um, then um, began to um, began to regard, as she got older, I guess she had, I guess, you know, questions about her own maleness, and began to regard her you know, her uh, sector of society, people that you know, maybe were born male, didn't feel that way, as being one of these minorities, uh, being a bit of, of an outcast, and being somebody that should not be looked down upon, that somebody that had equal rights, equal value as, as everybody else. And I said a second ago that this idea of appreciating differences was very Christian, was because when she thought, well, hey, um, you know, I have the right, the same value as any other person, um, yeah, that's extremely Christian. That's extremely Jewish. We were made by our Creator uh, in the image of God. We have intrinsic dignity and value because of that. And so, no matter who you are, you know, no matter what you've done, you're, you know, creation of God. You're deserving of of respect and love and compassion. And not if you, if not you only stray, a creature, yep. you're made in the image of God. Right. So not only are we a creature, we are made in His image. Every one of us that uh, tells us, yeah, that exactly that's someone to be to treat well, to take care of. They are in the image of God. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, I want to Christ say, uh, you know, when did you, someone says, well, when did uh, when did we, when, you know, when did we see you, Lord? Well. Did you, ever find, did you ever come across a you know a beggar in the street? I mean, you know, yeah, everybody, everybody's deserving of love and compassion. So, anyways, so uh, so, but uh, as it as I recounted a little earlier, so she had this sex reassignment surgery in 1994, and so she felt um, free. Uh, you know, she was freeing herself from this. I guess, I mean, prison. I mean, she uses the word apartheid, slavery. I mean, this this prison she was in, that you know, she was locked in this male body, didn't want to be, transitioned, uh, and now felt, you know, that she was free. Um, and then she began, and she, she, she began to, I guess, you know, question anybody who didn't agree with this kind of way of looking at things and compared the legal division, I'm quoting now from her book, the legal division of people into males and females is as wrong as the legal division of people into black and white races. So all this discrimination that she learned to uh, complain about and criticize and feel was, uh, and justifiably feel was wrong, whether it's uh, discrimination against Asian people that may look different, black people may look different from white people or white people may look different from black or, you know, whether you're a Jew or a Christian or, you know, some other religion, Muslim, Buddhist, whatever, you know, whatever kind of, you know, substruct, you know, substratum of society you want to talk about, um, that, you know, these, these, these divisions that we, that we impose on people where, which allow discrimination, well, that's all wrong. And like I said, there's, there's a great deal of truth in that, but she compared it to the division between male and female, and and that that's also a division that's wrong. And there's one problem I, I, that seems readily apparent with that logic. If you talk about black versus white, or Asian versus European, or Christian versus Jewish, guess what? All of those different peoples are still male and female. You know, I mean, they're all, they all share that characteristic. They're not different at all in that regard. So when you talk about the division, you know, you say, well, we're, di we're, we're, we're discriminating against people. We're looking at an Asian person and we're dividing him from the rest of our European population because, you know, they're different. And so mentally we put them into a different category. 
okay, so mentally we do that. Mentally that's not right because like, they, like we just explained, they each have equal value and dignity. Okay, uh, that's a division that we make. But the Asians and the Europeans, and et cetera, they're all male and female. There is no division there. They're all the same in that regard. So I don't think the analogy holds at all. But that's okay. Um, so I began to feel that there's discrimination based on, on sex is discrimination as well, and that we shouldn't allow it. Okay. So now we get to this, this point where I think you begin to see this is where the transgender attitude, you know, feeling the philosophy, where that, that comes from. Okay. Um, fine. Is that, and is that it? Is that all there is to it? Well, this highly successful CEO wasn't writing about just that. Her book wasn't about just that. No, she takes it a step farther. As a matter of fact, the second edition of the book bears a new title. It's not The Apartheid of Sex anymore. It's Friends From Transgender to Transhuman. You have Martine Rothblatt felt freed of her male body when she transitioned, tried to transition, attempted to transition, I guess transition to some degree. H- I mean, you operation. can't transition right. completely. There's, there's certain elements of your DNA and so forth. That if you're born male, there are certain parts of you that are going to be male no matter what you do. But anyways, um, but in whatever sense she transitioned, when she transitioned, um, she felt freed of this male body. Well, she wants to take it a step further. She, want, she thinks total freedom would be to be freed from your human body. It doesn't, freed from male, freed, freed, freed from male and female, to be completely, to be freed of your human body. Now, freed from male, freed from female, that gets you to the point where, okay, you're something in between. Now you're in the transgender realm that's being taught in this class in the United Kingdom, et cetera. But she wants to go beyond that. Freed from your body entirely. Well, how can you do that? How can you be freed from your your body? Ah, yes, you can. Modern technology, folks. Modern technology. Here's what she envisions. She talks about taking your feelings, your emotions, your thought patterns, your your, your patterns of these neural connections that make you who you, make you think the way you think. You download them into a computer. That is what she calls your mind file, your mind file. And then you merge that with software. And she calls that your mindware. And when you merge your mind file with your mindware, then you have a new species, I kid you not, a new species of person. I don't know, we can't call them human anymore. We're, we're in the transhuman realm. Uh, persona creatus. We just created our own person. And guess what you get to have when you now are living inside some computer somewhere? Well, immortality, I guess, until there's a power failure, I guess, uh, without a battery backup, but whatever. Um, You have immortality. So you can create yourself and you can have immortality. Hmm, interesting doesn't stop there. No, we can go still further. Here's how that works. You take a new person, a new mind, mind, uh, mind file plus mindware person. You take this new digital person. And guess what? You find a partner who's also downloaded their mind file, merged it with some software, to, and then created their own digital person and you link those two people on a computer, and you can create a third digital person. You can reproduce. And so now you have the whole human reality in a digital format without human bodies. And so it's, it's, a, it's a whole new species, and she says it very plainly. And she calls it this monumental event in human history that transgenderism is the historical event that just precedes, because it's very close, just precedes 
this transhuman realm. And they look for, and she looks forward to this. And she, and there's lots of, and there's people that, um, that that accept this, that regard this book as this great, you know, literary accomplishment. And and they look at it as the underpinnings, this this intellectual foundation for this transgender movement that is being taught in the schools. So, question. Now, I know, and it's probably because. I'm old enough that in school I was taught to question and think for myself. But question, um, you know, <laughs> I mean, what kind of a world are we creating with this? Um, you know, and here's the, I mean, the question, I, I think the immediate question, let's, I want to ask this question. What if we knew this? In other words, you're teaching a life education class, and you need to respect other people no matter if they think they're a cat or no matter who they are, because it's all about how you identify. What if at the same time we're teaching them, it was made known and explained to people that the intellectual underpinnings for this teaching, where this is going to go in the future, is this, is this realm of non-human existence. Are we not being told that? Do we not? Is the name Martin Rothblatt not a common household name because maybe it wouldn't be accepted so readily? That's my question. How come they're not explaining this? It will be explained. We'll find out maybe after they've, you know, pushed things down the road far enough that they can afford to do it without being rejected. Would everybody now want a transhuman reality? Would you no longer wish to be human? Because I have ooh, more questions that kind of come to mind. Um, when you merge your mental thought patterns with software, um, what's that like? I mean, number one, I mean, there's so many questions that come to mind. Number one, who designs the software? Who gets to say what's in the software? Um, you know, second, when you merge with the software, are you now a machine? Are you part machine? Are you, are you living the life of a machine? I mean, are you living the life of a machine? This, this sounds like science fiction, and it kind of is. Well, it's very science fiction, and I, I guess one of the, one of the things I, I sit here and think about or, or have to think about is what is so bad about living life the way we do where we are – or existing as we are. I, you know, the fear, obviously, and everybody, nobody likes this. The fear is that we're going to grow old and die, and it's going to be over, and that that's part of the human experience. And somehow, what will occur if you do this where you merge with a computer? You can live forever. You can exist forever. But we are made as humans. We're born we get educated, we learn, we do things on the earth, we make impressions, we change things. Many different human beings have made phenomenal changes to our life and our lifestyle to help others. But then we pass away and leave it to others. We have more that come after us. By doing this, we're existing for long lengths of time. We can skip. My guess is that the desire is that we're skipping death. You get to live if you're merged in a computer. And that's not reality. I mean, what are some of the greatest things that I think of when, when I live? That I think of hugging my child for the first time, right? If I'm a computer image, I can't hug my child for the first time. I don't get to do that. I don't get to experience that. When I saw a tree for the first time and realized that, how beautiful that was, when I hiked a mountain to some large peak and looked down from there and saw the earth in a totally new perspective— those are all human experiences that you could flash into a computer, but you don't get to really feel them. You get to mentally understand them, but you don't get to do that. And more so than that, the one that would worry me the most is the greatest thing that's ever happened to me is the realization that Jesus Christ is my Savior, and God made me this way, and I get to live forever with God if I continue to follow to follow what it is that he desires. I listen to him, and I try to live the life that he would like me to live. 
I get a chance to be with him eternally and take away the human experience, take that away, put me in a computer. I don't even know how someone who's created by computer could experience any of that. It seems like a, not a step forward, but a huge step back. Well, what you're talking about is the same kind of thing that Aldous Huxley talked about when he wrote the book Brave New World back in 1931, 32, having seen, you know, the world becoming changed in a short period of time from the invention of Henry Ford's assembly line. He then envisioned a world where, you know, you have test tube babies uh, passing down an assembly line, and and then there was this... uh, dictatorial state that taught everybody how to be, how to act, who, you know, and so on and so forth. Um, and what he lamented, what, what, it was a very dark picture of the future based on technological progress and uh, into a mechanized kind of world. Um, and, uh, you know, what he lamented the most is exactly what you're talking about, Bob. Where is the human emotion? Where is the human emotion? Um, where do you feel the love of a mother if you're a test tube baby? Uh, you know, is that not joyous? Is that, you know, in order to feel joy, yeah, human life has a lot of pain, but in order to feel joy, you have to feel pain. Otherwise, you wouldn't know what joy is. Uh, that's exactly what you're talking about. So anyways, into this crazy, you know, futuristic world, um, the sci-fi kind of world that I guess they want us to move towards. You wonder, you wonder, mind where, mind files, immortality, uh, hoping against hope that there's no such thing as a power failure. Um, um, what would St. Paul, I mean, St. Paul, if he were here today, would he have something to say? Behold, listen, this is, this is St. Paul talking. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all fall asleep, but we will all be changed. In an instant, in the blink of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For that which is corruptible must clothe itself with incorruptibility, and that which is mortal must clothe itself with immortality. And when this which is corruptible clothes itself with incorruptibility, and this which is mortal clothes itself with immortality, then the word that is written shall come about. Death is swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? This transhuman movement, it's a movement, so-called now, what is it afraid of? It's a reaction against the sting of death. This is a world, we live in a world, in a culture, in a society, we live in a world where God is increasingly less known, less felt, and certainly less felt with, with the, the joy of, of, you know, with the emotion of knowing him, the emotion that comes, the passion that comes from knowing him. Um, and so, you know, for a lot of people, there is nothing after this life. And, oh, how could we cling to an opportunity to avoid all of that? Yeah, well, yes, yeah, St. Paul would have something to tell you. If you're afraid of that, if you think there's, there's nothing else, and, yeah, you'd like to live in some kind of a, I don't know, uh, some kind of a database or, you know, whatever, somewhere, um, St. Paul would say, death has no victory. Death has no sting. Not only will you be clothed with this which is mortal, this human body clothes itself with immortality. The human body will clothe itself. It will not be traded in. It will not be discarded. The Catholic Church vehemently teaches that there is this thing called the unity of a body and a soul, that you are born with a body because God created us that way. God does not create anything that is not good. We can tarnish it. We can soil it. We can besmirch it. But when we're created, we're good. The body is good. This body will change. Christ had a body. He appeared after he, was, after he rose from the dead. He appeared 
in his human form. It was a resurrected body. It was a glorified body, but it had the appearance of a human, maybe more than an appearance. I'm not that much of an intellectual giant to know that. I don't know even if I was some kind of a theological expert. Uh, Bob, you know, when you finish your studies, maybe you can explain this all to me. But I dare to say that there are a lot of things that I don't care how how uh, advanced you are as a theological scholar, you still may not be able to answer. They still may be mysteries. But this idea of this glorified body, even if, even if we can't explain it completely, it's something the Church definitely teaches. And one of the reasons is this reading from Paul. One of the reasons we believe that is this reading from Paul, because he was inspired. We can talk about that a lot as well, but... Um, he talks about, you know, that this corruptible body is clothed with immortality. It is covered. It is joined with something else. Um, The body is not discarded. It is not thrust aside. It will remain. It was created by God. It will remain. This is an entirely different way of looking at things. This theology, so-called, that is being... Uh, put forth um, as this transhuman movement, as a very different view of the human body. Martin Rothblatt wants to get away from the body. As a matter of fact, it's it's this identity you have, gender identity, identity that you can put into a computer, this identity, your thought patterns, your feelings, your emotions. And I question, I question, another question I have, um, again, because I was taught the question, and to think for yourself. Another question I have is, can you do that? Can you put an emotion into a computer? I mean, maybe a computer can mimic that sort of thing, but can it feel like a human heart can feel? Can it feel like a human soul can feel? I don't only question. I reject that that's possible. Well, that's certainly not the way God created us. God created us, in fact, us very different from the animals and the vegetation. He created us with a body, and he created us with a soul. And the big difference between us and everything else is we have a soul that lasts forever. A cat, which this beginning student wanted to become, become a cat, a cat doesn't have a soul that lasts forever. When a cat dies, its soul dies. It ends. It, it's over. When a blade of grass dies, The soul of the blade of grass dies. It's done. It's finished. It's over. But we don't. We have that. And then we have, Ray, as you so eloquently put, this body that is transformed at the second coming. And we have this body that we will live with for all of eternity. And it is absolutely marvelous. Jesus, when he was here and reappeared, was so beautiful that the Apostles couldn't even tell who he was. He was sitting over on the beach cooking, and they didn't know who he was. Two disciples were walking to Emmaus with him and did not know who he was. They didn't understand. It is so different and so beautiful and so elegant that they couldn't comprehend this. That's what God has in store for us, is this body and soul that will be joined forever in eternity at the second coming of Christ. And what a glorious thing that is. But I think all of this that you're talking about, Ray, is a reaction and a fearful reaction of, I don't want to die, therefore I want to stick myself in a computer or stick myself somewhere else, as opposed to believing the truth that God has put in front of us, that we have eternity, we will be forever, we will be with him forever, and we will have this transformed body. This is almost like hedging your bets. I'm going to go, I'm a little afraid of of God and what he's promised. Therefore, I'm going to hedge my bets and stick my body into a, stick my mind into a computer. That's a better answer than trusting in the one that made us, the trusting in the God that, that actually created us. Seems like a bad bet to me. You know, there's one other, there's one other, one other I think, very big difference here. Okay. Immortality in a machine. Okay, that's nice. Immortality in St. Paul's uh, version, where, you know, we're connected to God. Um, I think there's a little bit of a difference here in that one involves love. Mm. One involves love. 
and one does not. How can how can existence, an immortal existence, if you know, I mean, I'll just assume, for the sake of argument, let's talk about an immortal existence in a machine, but whatever. Um, how can you have love there? Where does love even come from? Is that also a construct of the mind? Um, why is it that everybody feels um, in some way, okay, Forget the site, the sociopaths who have no conscience, but okay, because they're the exceptions that prove the rule. But why is it a universal thing that I don't know? Killing is wrong. Why? You know, where does that come from? Because if we all have the sense that killing is wrong, we all have the sense that we should not do evil to other people. That we should, therefore, I mean, the, I mean, the, the, the flip of that, the necessary conclusion is that we also must feel that we should do good to other people. And, you know, everyone's capable, I don't care, you know, how bad you've been of being redeemed and of doing some good act towards some other person and, and feel good about why? Where does that innate sense of feeling good when you do something nice for somebody, where does that come from? I, you know, is that just, is it, oh, I don't know, did it evolve? You know, did, did we need it for the survival of the species? Is doing good as opposed to survival of the fittest where you kill off the weak? Uh, no, I mean, that, that's, that's counterintuitive to survival of the fittest. Uh, so there's this, this sense of, of love and there's this, and the depth of love. There are times when you feel love, um, when you have an intense emotional moment with a child, with your parent, with your loved one, uh, your spouse, uh, you know, et cetera. There's a depth at times that you can feel that you can't even describe. Where does that come? I mean, where does that live? Um, is it is it just something that just is there? That's like saying, well, eh, you know, the universe. Well, it's just there. Well, it had to come from somewhere. Um, you know, we can get into arguments about the Big Bang. Well, what happened before the Big Bang? Well, nothing. There was the Big Bang. Well, no, the, the, you know, so Big Bang is the physical, I mean, you had this explosion of physical matter. Well, okay, what happened before the Big Bang? There was no physical matter. There was not, there was, there was antimatter. No, how can you have matter created from non-matter? That's just, it's logically, I mean, it just doesn't add up. Where does so ask the same question about where does love come from? Is it just there? How can you have love in circuitry? Is it the same? How could it ever be the same? Um, you know, so you can, I don't know. Choose your choose your immortality. Which which one would you want? Would you want you know digital immorality where you're you know alive in some kind of a circuit, uh, pattern of circuits, some conglomeration of circuits? Um, or would you want this immortality that, you know, St. Paul is talking about, where you're, you're clothed with what is incorruptible? There's this concept in, in what he's writing about. Um, and if any of you don't recognize it, this is um, not some new letter where ghostwriting or fabricating for Paul, but this is actually um, a quote from his first letter to the Corinthians. It's often recited it at funerals. Um, but there's this idea of incorruptibility, that the only re that, you know the only way we can really attain immortality is if we clothe ourselves with what is not soiled, what is, what is not tarnished. It's incorruptible. Oh, oh by the way, that, that word's been in use here in Missouri a little bit lately um, because... Um, oh, I don't know. They found a they found a, a nun who had died some years ago, about five years ago, and oh, her body's like incorruptible. Yeah, that's a Catholic term, incorruptibility. Um, there are saints that years after they have passed, their body still appears um, without decomposition. How does that happen? If this is a, a world where Oh, it's science and the laws of physics. Where's the explanation for that? 
oh, well, it must have been the, the climate. I mean, come up with what you want. This is, um, there's, that's an example of someone who is very close to God, who is incorruptible. Uh, there's a different path here. You don't, we don't have to be afraid of death. We don't have to lose our humanity. There's, I mean, Huxley talked about this. You know, you lose all of the emotion. You lose the love. You lose, lose the passion. You lose the art. You lose, lose the creativity. Um, you lose what it means to be human. People think, these people think, well, you can take the essence of what it means to be human and put it into a computer. Can you? Can you really? Is this, you know, and so, I don't know, maybe we should do an experiment with this before we change the whole world based on this kind of philosophy. I don't know. That's just a thought. Well, I, I think, Ray, as we talk about this, I, I think the concept of I can put into computer intellect. I can do math problems. I can do physics problems. I, I can solve the torque on a bridge to make sure I build a bridge big enough. Engineers are good with computers. We can do all of that. But, in, but you cannot put love into a computer. It doesn't fit. It doesn't work. It's, it's, it's not doable. And that love that we feel for one another came from God and is not something that can be wrapped into a computer. You can try to mimic it. You could try to do lots of things. But that love that God gave us, that love that he put us on earth with, and what he hopes is that we will not only love others, but we will love him. We will return that love that he has given us back to him because that's what we desire is being with him for the rest of eternity. And you can't put that into a computer. Love doesn't fit into there. There's, there's lots of dating sites that are trying to somehow mimic that in, a, in some sort of computer fashion. But that's just matching various skills, talents, passions, those sort of thing. Love itself is outside of that. It can't be matched. You can't do that. And that is because it comes from God. It is God's gift to us and it is what we hope to return to him. And, man, you were smack on when you talked about that this is all missing love. It's what God put us on earth for. Every one of us feels that love, even before the Ten Commandments came out, right? You had Moses going up and getting the Ten Commandments. Before that, every human being that lived knew it was wrong to kill, to lie, to cheat, right? We knew that even before the Ten Commandments came out. Why? Because we have the love of God that's in our heart and in our soul. That love is the, is the true answer. And I can't imagine missing life totally and missing love at the same time. That, that would be horrendous. I, not, not a big fan of p putting myself into a computer. <laughs> I, I'd rather live it. I mean, why would we want to, why do you want to get, why do you want to give up being human? Why, you know, I mean, they, you know, the church teaches um, that the body and soul are one, um, as, you know, St. Paul is talking about in this particular reading. And in the Catholic Catechism number 364, it says something that I found very interesting. It talks about the soul as the form of the body. Not the body is the form of the soul. You would think the body is the outward shell. It's the physical form that surrounds the soul. But the church talks about the soul being the form, and they put it in quotes, the form of the body. Now, Martine Rothblatt wants to reject the form. She doesn't like the form. We've got to be freed of the, these, these forms, this human form. She's got the opposite idea, that the body is uh, the form of our identity. Our identity is our mind. It's the sep There's a war. She wants to be freed of the body. This is very Manichaean. For those of you who know a little Catholic history. Um, but there's this, there's, this, there's this dualism that goes on here. And it, it goes back, this is one of the reasons why Rene Descartes was so wrong philosophically. We're dividing people in half. We're chopping people right down the middle. You know, Descartes had this idea where, you, you know, you separate the soul from the body, and that's exactly what this is all about. You have to get freed of the body. The body is at war with this inner self trying to be freed 
of the body. It is so Manichaean, so dualistic. Uh, that's turmoil. That's unrest. That's disturbance. That's not peace. That's not peace. What do you find with a relationship in Christ? When you have a relationship with Christ, what do you find? You find peace. There is no turmoil. You don't have, you're not at war with yourself. And, you know, if you're going to have a, a transhuman movement that they want all of society— uh, and by the way, so um, uh, Aldous Huxley's Brave New World, you know, there was a global world order. Um, everybody, you know, fit, in, fit under this, 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 this one system. Um, so if this transhuman movement envisions a world that's all organized, you know, around this uh, idea, um, why, I mean, why do they want an existence, a new reality based on turmoil? Why do they want us all to join into their turmoil where we don't like our bodies? Well, anyways, um, that's our discussion for today. We hope you found it provocative, interesting. I hope you'll join us again. Uh, but before we go, uh, we're going to leave you, as we always do, uh, with um, before this program is over, with a prayer. And we've got somebody who is uh, so very capable in helping us with that. So, Deacon Bob, if you could please. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gifts that you give us, the gift of life, the gift of love, the gift of your love. Allow us always to know that that is where we are to return. We are to return to you. But before we return, we are to take that love out and give it to others, to share that with the world, to share your love, to help bring others to you. That is our job. That is our charter, to be with you, to love you, and to bring others to know you. Allow us to do that through whatever means we have. Allow us always to be thinking of those around us, to let them know that it was Jesus Christ, your son, who was here on earth and showed us the exact way to be. And it is through him that we will all be saved and brought to you. And we pray all of this through the name of that Savior, who is Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Amen. In the name and of the, the Father, Father, and of the and Son, the Son, and the Holy, and the Holy Spirit. Spirit. Amen. Amen. We do thank you for joining us. This has been St. Paul's Letters to America. And uh, until next time, we simply say, may God bless. <laughs>